Uh, I hope you've all had a, a good, a good, um, a good week, and a good start to your, uh, good start to your week. Uh, my name is Jonathan. I'm in pain right now. <laughs> um, so yeah, my name is Jonathan. I'm the campus minister with RUF. Uh, it's great to, it's great to see you all. Uh, if, you, if this is your first time, welcome. I'm glad you're in RUF. I talk faster when I'm in pain and I'm hurting, so I'm <laughs> slow down. Um, so, um, anyways, yeah, we're barreling towards spring break, and that's, a good, that's good news for a lot of us. How many of y'all are staying in town for spring break? Sweet. How many of y'all are leaving for spring break? About half and half. Okay, cool. We'll do stuff. We'll, do, we'll hang out. Um, so, anyways, we are, we're continuing our conversation tonight on relationships and uh, asking all kinds of questions about relationships. And tonight, we're asking specifically the question of how do we relate to our non-Christian friends, the people that we have in our spheres, in our relationships, realms, family, friends, classmates, people who are not Christians, um, which is a really interesting topic. And I know that it's the reality that all of us are going to have, um, because the reality is, is that we will interact with people who are not Christians. Like, we are a group of Christians. We're pretty open about that. And we are going to interact with people who are not Christians. We can't not. Part of living in the world is that we're going to have disagreements about life. And part of that is going to be disagreements about spirituality and faith. It's going to happen. It's not a bad thing. So how do we as Christians interlog, dialogue, kind of do life, walk through life with our, with our pe- friends who are, who are uh, still asking questions about Christianity? So this is a huge topic, obviously, with tons of angles and tons of different... Um, nuances, and it's a challenge of these topics is that like the devil is in the details because the moment I start saying like we're going to talk about how do we interact with our non-Christians, all of you go to relationships and start thinking about the specifics of that relationship um, and applying this, and that's great. Like that's why we do this is to, to do that, but it also means that I can't say everything to everyone tonight, that there's going to be a lot of stuff that that goes unsaid. I'm going to try and lay out some broad principles, and then we can talk about them. You can either text me or we can explore them. Uh, And then I just want to say this. To those of you who are here tonight who are still exploring, who are still asking questions about Christianity and about faith, especially the Christian faith, I'm really glad you're here. Like, I'm really, really glad you're here. And in fact, um, it's a really brave and courageous thing to be here tonight, um, that you would come in and sit with what is feeling like, I'm sure still, sometimes feels like a strange group of people asking, and, you know, asking questions. Like, let's just be honest, Christians can do some really weird things. Like we sing, we stand up and we sing, and that's strange sometimes. Not very many other, you know, that's strange. Or we study a book that's 2,000 years old. That doesn't make sense. Uh, I, under, I get that. Um, we pray, we talk about blood covering our sin, which these are weird. I mean, these are foreign topics. I get it. Um, so I'm just really proud of you, honestly, for those of you who are here and are still exploring that you would even come in tonight and ask the question. That's a lot of courage. So I encourage you, keep exploring. <laughs> keep asking those questions. Keep moving closer to, to, you know, to people in this room or to me or to others and ask those questions. Um, and those, for those of us who are here who are Christians, I know that it's one of the main questions that we ask ourselves is, how do I take this thing that I believe that I hold closely and then move into a public, public sphere and relate it to my non-Christians? And so tonight we're going to read about an encounter that Jesus has 
with a group of what are supposedly morally upright people and a group of supposedly morally sinful people and how what we can learn from that. And what we're going to see is that Jesus has amazing, tremendous love and a heart for non-Christians and that he calls us to do the same. That Jesus has a a tremendous heart for non-Christians and he calls us to do the same. And we're going to look at this in three three ways. Well, actually four ways, now I think about it. you think I've thought about this before I talk. But anyways, we're going to talk about what Jesus does, what Jesus calls us to do, how, and then the fuel. What Jesus does, what he calls us to do, how do we do it, and then what motivates us to do it. So uh, if you have your bulletin, look at, the, look at the text, and we're going to dig into this. Um, this is, we're going to be looking in the book of Luke, which is one of the Gospels. Uh, and this is uh, 10 verses from Luke 15. This is God's word. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has not lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses a coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her neighbors, her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, um, we're coming in from a lot of different places tonight. Some of us are full, some of us are empty, some of us are rejoicing, some of us are mourning, some of us are... Uh, excited, some of us are not, some of us are angry, some of us are sad. There's a lot of different positions. Um, I pray that as we look at your word now that you would be with us, that your spirit would be effective yet gentle uh, in these few minutes. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so let's start with what does Jesus do? What is Jesus doing here that sets the stage? And so we see right off the bat, verse 1, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And then it says, this man, the Pharisees grumble, and they say, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So what's going on here? Well, Jesus clearly had a magnetic personality. Jesus had the kind of personality that people wanted to be around him. We've been around people like this before, where you just want to be with this kind of person. And so all kinds of people flocked towards Jesus. They wanted to see him. And part of what our text tells us is that these two groups called tax collectors and sinners come to be with Jesus. Now, who are these? Who are these people? The first is the tax collectors. Tax collectors back then were basically like cheating traitors. (laughs) Cheating traitors. They were traitors because they were Jews who were in league with the Roman army. They were in league with the Roman army. And so Israel was, was occupied by the Romans at this time in a way that was politically oppressive in a way that was, that the, the Romans were very cruel to the Israelites. And uh, the Romans levied major taxes against the Israelites in this. And, and the tax collectors were people that they hired to come and, le- and to, to get the taxes. And so there are Jews who come in and say, like, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take the money. And so they were seen as traitors to their nation. 
But not only that, they were cheaters because they could charge basically whatever they wanted off the top. At the top. They could take any profit they wanted as long as they met their quota for the Roman Empire. So there's been research that they would charge up to 50%, 40 to 50%, which is an absurd amount of money that they were charging. So clearly these are not people that people like to be around. These are people, they're cheating traders. Uh, and, and so everyone hates them. And then the second is these sinners, and it's, easy to, it's easier to discern who they are. Um, these are the people who are clearly not following the Bible's ethical codes, that is today, who would not be considered you know, the religious group, the people who would not find themselves in a church on Sunday morning. Um, and so here we have these cheating traders and these presumably non-religious people who are following Jesus. And that makes the religious people really mad. The Pharisees, these people who are supposedly the ones who are you know, close to God, are coming and saying, how can he be a moral religious teacher if he's eating with these people, if he's entertaining their company? And notice what Jesus does here. He's eating with these people. He's breaking the social and religious ranks. And in fact, in other parts of the Bible, we see that Jesus intentionally seeks out the non-religious, those are not obeying. He pursues after them. Not, and Jesus does this across the board. Jesus pursues different ethnicities. Jesus pursues women in a way that empowers them. Jesus pursue, pursues the poor. Jesus pursues the rich. All the different strata that we divide ourselves into racially, linguistically, ethnically, socioeconomically, Jesus spans across all of them in a way that's trying to get those people of all different strata to follow him. And it shows us that Jesus is concerned with the lives and the souls of non-religious, non-Christian people in a way that is even offensive to those who are on the inn, which is amazing because that's me. <laughs> I've grown up in the Christian church my whole life. Jesus, that means if Jesus was to walk on New Mexico State, he would do things with people that I would be like, uh, that's too far. That's challenging. This should challenge us. And they're, they're, they're grumbling. The Pharisees, the presumably righteous people, they grumble. And Jesus tells them two stories. He tells them two stories in verses 3 and verses 8. And the stories are pretty self-explanatory. A shepherd who leaves his, all his other sheep to find the one lost one. Or a woman who will ransack her house to find one lost coin. What do these stories illustrate? What are they pointing to? The point is that Jesus wants the tax collectors and the sinners to repent of their sin and follow him. And he's saying that heaven rejoices when this happens. That when, when, when a, someone who is not following Jesus comes to say, like, yeah, I'm in, I, I'm, I want to be on Jesus' team. I'm on Jesus' side. This is good news. This is great news. And notice the repetition in verses 6 and verse 9. Verse 6, And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And in verse 9, she calls her friends and neighbors and says, Rejoice with me, for I have the coin that I had that lost has been found. And, and that's a total contrast with verse 2, the grumbling of the Pharisees. Do you notice that? They're, they're grumbling against Jesus pursuing these people. And he's saying, no, 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 no. The posture, our posture should be we rejoice, we seek after them, we pursue them in a way that they follow Jesus.
Jesus says the point is not party lines, the point is not moral cleanliness, it's not who is seen with whom, it's all the things that we care about. The point is that people who don't know Jesus come to know him as their Lord and Savior. And in verse 7 and 10, he explains it. He tells us the whole point of all of it. Just as I tell you, there is more joy in heaven when one sinner repents. So that's what Jesus does. And what does that mean that Jesus calls us to? Let's look at the second point. What does Jesus call us to? If this is Jesus' action, then friends, he's calling us to nothing less. We are the people who should diligently seek the salvation of those around us, like a woman seeks a coin diligently. A few years ago, there was a boy in Minnesota. His name was Mitch. And uh, he was was eight years old. Mitch was a fairly normal boy. And then one day, uh, he's playing and he falls down and his leg hurts really bad. And so they they go to the doctor and they find out, well, what's, what's up with his leg? And they discover that he has uh, incurable stage four bone cancer. And it's inoperable and it's incurable and that Mitch has less than a year to live. And um, so, you know, they're, they're dealing with the pain of this, Mitch and his family are, and um, the Christmas comes around and Mitch is in the hospital, um, you know, in the hospital for treatment, and he hears, he and his dad are in the room, and he hears next door a family next to the, next, in the room next to him, and the little boy is, the next door boy is crying because his parents had just told him that there's not going to be any money for Christmas presents this year because all the money went to um, paying for medical expenses. And so Mitch tells, tells his dad, he says, Dad, we have to do something about this. And he's like, there's nothing we can do, son. And he's like, no, 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 I, I want to do something about this. Let's, let's, go, let's go to the bank. And so he goes to the bank and he pulls out all the money that he has. And he has a pretty considerable amount of money. And so he's got about $6,000. Mitch, in his, he takes every penny out and starts stuffing it into envelopes. And he starts writing, I love you, from Mitch, XOXO, and then starts sliding these envelopes underneath hospital doors in the the pediatric oncology department. And he just goes back to his room and he starts listening. And these kids are finding this cash and they're just exclaiming with joy at, oh my gosh, look what we've done. We can have Christmas now. And he's just overjoyed listening to this. And he says, Dad, this is the most fun I've ever had. Let's do it again next year. And the dad, with tears in his eyes, says, Mitch, we've talked about this. You're probably not going to be here next year. And Mitch sat still for a moment, and he says, Daddy, Pinky, swear me that you'll do this next year. Pinky, swear to me that, that you'll do this, that you will bring this joy next year. And his dad promised, and his dad starts a nonprofit called Pinky Swear and gives millions of dollars to kids with cancer. To this day, still an organization. Friends, that's what Jesus calls us to do. That's what he calls us to do. Nothing less than that. The Great Commission is Jesus telling his disciples, I'm leaving, but bring this joy in my place to those around you. She says, I'm not here anymore, but you can go and be the blessing to the hurting, to the lost, to the lonely, to the spiritually sick. That's what we're called to do as Christians. To put it in the starkest terms, this is going to sound somewhat offensive to some of you. Jesus wants converts. 
Jesus wants converts. It's a bold claim in 2020. The word converts, it sounds offensive. It sounds inappropriate. It sounds, it sounds like something that we shouldn't say today. But think of it this way. If, think with me on this. If, and this is a big if, and I'm willing to negotiate this if with you. But if Christianity is what it says it is. If Christianity is what it says it is, that is, that Jesus Christ is both God and man who comes down in the same person, who lives the perfect life, who dies on a cross for my sin, for your sin, then is raised back to life. Presumably that is what the Bible claims happened. If that, and, and, and if that actually happened, friends, then Christianity is the only and the best hope for our world. The only and best hope for our world. It is the only hope for all of the strife and brokenness and sin and crap that our world encounters. It's the only hope, if that's true. If it's not true, then Christianity is the biggest lie power grab in the history of the human experience. But if it's true, and I'm convinced it is, if it's true, then we have the right and the responsibility to tell our friends about it because their souls hang in balance over it. If Christianity is true, it is the best news, the only hope for our world. So yes, Christianity wants converts because Jesus is risen and we have to tell people about it. Now why is this hard? <laughs> it's really hard, isn't it? I know it's hard. I think some of us, we forget these stakes that are high. We think, I think one of the major reasons that we neglect to do this is that we forget what's on the line. But Jesus tells us that life and death, spiritual life, spiritual death are on the line here for our friends, for our family. And that their only hope in this life and the next is trusting in Jesus. I think sometimes we get complacent. All too often I think we treat the Christian faith like it's my own personal means to sleep at night. We tend to think, well, this is good for me. I can get my kicks in. I feel better. But I'm not so sure it's so true that I want to risk telling someone else about it. I know that's true for me. It helps me feel good about myself and about others, but I'm not sure it's good for them. I don't want to, I don't want to risk offending them. Which is the third point. We're afraid. We're afraid of rejection. What if they don't like me? What if they want to stop hanging out with me? What if they think I'm some sort of religious fundamentalist? That's real, y'all. Last week, last week, I've been meeting with a guy here for the last couple of months, and he's, he's still exploring faith, and we've been playing a lot of pool, as you know, as I want to do, and we haven't had any conversations about spirituality. And so finally, I was like, I need to ask him, like, I'm a Christian pastor. I need to ask him, like, hey, let's talk about faith. And so <laughs> I prayed for two hours for courage to ask him, like, hey, man, do you want to study the Bible with me? Two hours, because why? I was afraid, like, it's my job. And I was afraid to ask him to study the Bible with me. So I was like, hey, you want to study? And he's like, yeah, sure, that'd be great. And I was like, Pfft. <laughs> you know. <laughs> but I get it, it's scary stuff. Some of us are huddled. We're so closely linked with other Christians, and, which is great, but we don't even, I, when I was in college, I didn't know a single non-Christian, to my shame. All of my close friends were, and I sequestered myself from opportunities to share my faith. So I asked the question, what prevents you? That's a hard question, but I ask it. What prevents you from evangelism? Jesus offers a challenge to those of us who are Christian. He says an integral part 
of my mission on earth is to pursue non-Christians in a way that they repent of their sin and that they become Jesus' followers, disciples, Christians. Jesus wants converts and he calls us to nothing less. So that makes the question then, like, how do we do this? How do we do this? How do we actually share our faith? And it's a, it's a careful, touchy topic. <laughs> and honestly, we can have a conversation about this, but I don't think street preaching is the best way to do it. I think it ends up hurting and turning away more people than it reaches. It feels like sales, and we all hate to be sold something. So how do we do it? I, I've been thinking a lot about this. I think, I think it's gentle, persistent presence. Rather than an aggressive, one-off call to be a Christian, it's a gentle, Christ-like presence in our friends' lives. I pray every day that your faith as students in RUF at New Mexico State, I've said this before, is like charcoal, not lighter fluid. Charcoal, not lighter fluid. What do I mean by that? Lighter fluid's really fun when you light it on fire. It's this big flash, and it's really spectacular, but then it's gone, and you can't do anything with it. You can't cook with it. It's fun, but there's nothing. What's charcoal? It gets hotter and more useful and more effective with time. That's how our evangelism should work. That we just live our lives, do our lives in the presence of those who are still exploring Christianity in a way that just lets, lets it happen. How do we do this? A few thoughts. One, we just live our lives with our friends. We study with them. We exercise with them. We work with them. We talk with them. We talk politics and grades and relationships. And in that, we earn the right to ask them questions about life and spirituality and emotions and about God and Jesus. It's what playing pool for months was. was. I earned the right to say, like, hey, you want to read the Bible? Yeah, I do. Second, we pray. Remember that only God can do this. Repentance is God doing the impossible. It's making life where there's death. It's making a child where there's a rebel. That only the Holy Spirit can do this. And it can take years. I had a professor in seminary who became a Christian uh, in a really dark moment in his 20s and then prayed for his dad for 50 years. 50 years. Prayed that his dad would become a Christian. His dad became a Christian literally seconds before he died. Third, look for felt needs in our friends, in our community. What do I mean by felt needs? Felt needs are the empty places in people's lives that they are aware of. The empty places where they say, there's something missing here. Loneliness, depression, anxiety, family drama, breakups, guilt, anger at injustice. All of these things that life, that we go through in life, these are opportunities for us to say, yeah, you know what? I think Christianity actually has something to say about that. When I was in New York, when I lived in New York City, I'd been meeting with a student who was not a Christian. He'd been to RUF a few times, um, but was not really interested in doing anything. We just kind of hung out. He didn't really want to talk about faith or spirituality, but we'd grab lunch. We'd explore art museums. Uh, you know, most of our conversation was just like sports and classes and weekend plans. And then one day after four months of kind of just, you know, hanging out, being friends, which was great, uh, he just said, you know, we never had a conversation about Christianity. He just says, Jonathan, my brother tried to kill himself last week and I don't know what to do about it. And it's got me thinking about faith. 
And right then and there, we, had, we started, prompted several weeks of conversations about faith and about the Bible, and our friendship actually got stronger by talking about faith. Imagine that, that our friendships could actually get deeper by talking about faith, talking about spirituality, talking about God, not as a friend being like, whoa, I'm going to back out of this friendship. Third, invite them into conversation. Invite our friends into conversation. Invite them to RUF. We love it. This, I want this to be a place where people come in and say, I have major questions about Christianity. In fact, I'm not a Christian. In fact, I really don't like Christianity. I want that in RUF. I want us to be a place where people can come in and say, I'm not persuaded. Christianity has done some really terrible things in history. Invite them in. We don't want to be a place where we're just us. I want us to be a place where people can say, I, I'm still exploring. I don't know what I think. Invite them to church. Invite them to read a Bible. Y- y'all are better at doing evangelism with your friends than I ever will. Why? Because you know them. You trust them. They trust you. You're going to be able to share the gospel with your parents in a way that's so much more effective than I would. And then in conversation, when it comes up, we say Jesus is the only way to be joyful in this life and the next. The only way that you will be satisfied and find joy is, that, is by trusting in him, trusting that he is God and that he is man, that he came and died and came back to life, and that by trusting in him, you live in his name. That's the gospel. That's the stuff that we tell our friends. That's the stuff that we say. This is the hope for your life. And friends, this is the stuff of revival. That's the stuff that, this is the stuff of revival. This is the stuff that the Holy Spirit can use when a community is like, yeah, we are going to be earnest about pursuing those next to us whom we love with the gospel. This is how the Holy Spirit moves in big ways. I've been praying since I've been a campus minister for revival at New Mexico State. I don't care if he uses RUF. I don't care what campus ministry he uses. I want students who don't know Jesus to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Because they need it. We need it. I don't use the language revival often because I'm a good Presbyterian, but it's important stuff. (laughs) It's, a, it's important stuff. This is the stuff of eternity and it matters. What's the motor for this? Last point. How do we do this? Where is there grace in this? Look at the text again. Look at verse 7. Just, as, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven when one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. What's going on here? There's actually a level of irony, kind of, poking irony in what Jesus is doing here, because when, when Jesus says the words, the righteous have, who have no need of repentance, because it's ironic because that person doesn't exist. <laughs> we know from the rest of the Bible that no human is so righteous, so moral, so religiously pure that they don't need to repent of sin. The Bible tells us clearly, Psalm 14, Psalm 53, Romans 3, Romans 1, Ephesians 2, all over the place that all people are sinful and are desperately in need of God's redeeming grace. So that when Jesus here says righteous, he means the people who are righteous in their own eyes, who don't think they are sinners which just shows how great of sinners they actually are. (laughs) So the reality means that if everyone is unrighteous, then that means that at one point 
I was the lost sheep. I was the lost coin. And God sought me out. And there was rejoicing in heaven, presumably. That God diligently sought you out. And that when you came to Christ, God rejoiced. Do you hear that? That God rejoiced, rejoices at your salvation. That you are the lost coin of great value. That it's not we Christians are the righteous and the non-Christians are the sinners. No, we're all in the same desperate need of God's grace. And he pursued you and loves you. That all of us are sinners and that only, only by the grace, the sheer grace of God and nothing else that we do, we are all lost in sin, damned to hell for God's wrath. Only through His grace alone are we Christians. That is the only thing that saves us. And God in His mercy saves us. If that God would come close to us, then we can diligently go close to others. How much more, if God would come close to us, can we go close to our friends? The motor for evangelism is God's grace towards us. It's not, hey, you need to share your faith three times this week or I'm not sure you're a Christian. The motor for evangelism is think about how much God adores you, rejoiced over you, rejoices over you as his daughter, son, sheep, coin. Pick a pick a, a value. That's what God looks at you as. Now, in light of his grace, go tell those who need to hear it. What makes evangelism not a task or a chore, but a joy-filled response is God's love for us. So study his love. I tell you the same thing every week. Study his love and let that fuel you to do what we're called to do, which is share our faith. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, um,